And if you're going to win souls, you've got to love souls. In spite of their meanness, in spite of the way they look, in spite of everything, you've got to seek to bring souls to Jesus Christ because you love them, because Jesus loved them, and because Jesus died for them, and you're trying to bring them to the Son of God. Welcome to Sandy Creek Stirrings. Glad to have you here with me on the podcast. Of course, I am your host, Joshua Jimenez, and thank you for joining me today. Another beautiful, beautiful day outside. Aren't you thankful for all that God has done for you? You know, God is just, oh my goodness, He just blesses and blesses and blesses. It's amazing what God does for people who are really, uh, really unworthy of Him. And uh, I can say that I know I'm unworthy of him. Truth is, everybody's unworthy. Some some people might not be willing to admit it, but I'm unworthy of anything. You know, if God, if all he did was die on the cross to save me from hell, then he is worth my every uh, last breath of praising him and giving him honor. And he's just such a good God. I mean, you look at all the things that he does for us, just being able to, hey, put my feet over the side of the bed this morning. That was a blessing. I'm glad I woke up alive and well and ready to go. And so there's blessings all around you. Make sure you take time to see them and to look at the blessings that God has given you. Today is a Tuesday Apologetics Day, and uh, apologetics, of course, simply means the defense of your faith. And that's something from the beginning of time that as I began to do Sandy Creek Stirrings and record the episodes and talk to people and try and get the content across to you, I really wanted you to be able to walk away from Apologetics Tuesdays and be able to defend your faith. As the Bible says in 1 Peter, to be ready to give an answer to every man that asketh you a reason of the hope that is in you. Uh, You should be ready to give every man an answer. And there are people out there who are looking for the truth. They want the truth. They're looking for it. They're asking questions. They're not these people who are just looking for an argument or looking for a fight. They generally want to know the truth. And you need to have an answer for them. And so you need to know how to defend your faith. The Bible says in Proverbs that a wise man studieth to answer. Um, the Bible says in First Timothy that you should study to show yourself approved unto God, a workman that needeth not to be ashamed, rightly dividing the word of truth. And so God wants you to invest time in studying out his word, studying out his response to a lot of these issues that come across in, uh, in life, and to be able to answer them as God would have you to. I was reading in my Bible this morning, and I found so interesting Christ was talking, and Jesus said this in John chapter 7, verse 16. He said, Jesus answered them and said, My doctrine is not mine, but his that sent me. Isn't that interesting? He said, My doctrine is not mine, but his that sent me. That should be both the answer of you and I, that our doctrine, our beliefs, our standards, everything about us and our belief in God is not based on our opinion. It's not based on something we think. It is based on the Word of God, and that is the key to truly having a answer for every man. And we've talked about those three key facts, those three key areas that you need to have an answer, and we talked, number one, that you need a biblical answer. As a Christian, you're responsible first and foremost to give a biblical answer. Every answer you give for everything in life should have a biblical basis to it. Now, the Bible may not 
necessarily expressly cover that topic or that issue within a written word of the Word of God, but God always lays principles for us to base every decision of our life upon, and therefore we can in any situation and to every man give an answer according as God would have us to answer. So our our answers in our defense of our faith must first be biblical. And then two, we talked that they need to be factual. And we covered some of this last week when we talked about abortion. You need some facts to go behind your argument. Um, You can't just make stuff up. You have to have facts, and facts really can just ring home with people. And when you start giving facts and statistics, it can bring everything to this thing where the Bible matches with the facts and everything is coming together. So you need it biblically, you need it factually, and then you need it logically, meaning that it's going to make sense, and you have to bring it down. And, you know, if you want everybody to get the cookies, you put them on the bottom shelf, then everybody of every age bracket can get them. And so what we try to do here at Sandy Creek Stirrings is we take some of these um, topics that can be a little deep, that can be a little um, in-depth, but we try to take the cookies per se, and we try to put them on the bottom shelf to where everybody can understand. And I hope we've done a good job at that. And over the course of these episodes we've had here at Sandy Creek Stirrings, we've had a lot of different topics we discussed. We've um, talked about what truly is biblical salvation. We had a Calvinism part one and part two. We talked about is Christ in the Old Testament? How can we prove that? We went on a series entitled Bible Versions part one. We did Bible Versions part two and then part three. We talked about um, church attendance and the faithful failure too many Christians make. We talked about why and how Christians should vote. Um, We talked about witchcraft in the Bible and today and in your home. We talked about Halloween, a Christian's response. We talked about alcohol in the Christian. Uh, That was a good one. That was a big one. We talked about tithing. Should Christians tithe? Is a tithe still a commandment? Uh, We talked about the truth of music. There were three parts to that. We talked about uh, the gap theory. We talked about why you should live a good life after salvation. We talked about, um, let's see, the most recent one was abortion, I believe. And then I think we did three newlywed focal points was kind of in there. No, that was a Friday episode. Uh, But we did... um, abortion and and fit those in there. And so it's important that you understand these topics, have a grasp of them, because these are big uh, topical issues that people are going to bring up as you talk to people. And as you have coworkers who ask questions and friends and family and and those different groups, they're going to ask you about these things and you need to be able to give an answer to every man. Now that verse in Peter says that you give an answer to every man, uh, the reason of the hope that is in you. And ultimately, all boils down to the reason of the hope that is in you. You as I, you and I as Christians should have a hope that nobody else really has. Um, no matter the situations, no matter the outcome of the election, no matter the pandemic, no matter any of that, we should have a hope that nobody else has. And really, it all boils down to this. We may learn how to answer on abortion. We may learn to answer on, is tithing still biblical? And those things are important, and they're needed, and they and they need to be discussed. But it all boils down to salvation. And so if you're talking with a coworker at work, or you're talking with a, a family member, or a friend, or blah, 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 you name it, you, put the, you fill in the blank, it all boils down to salvation. And that's where you want to get to with people. You want to get to salvation. Now, it's not to say some of these topics, all of these topics, rather, are not important. They are. And you need to have an answer. And so, but it all boils down to salvation. Have they been saved? Where will they go when they die? And so today we've got an episode on a topic that is, oh, it's kind of touchy. Um, it's a topic that I want to, as I come to it, I want to be careful in the way I 
uh, relay the information to you and just be totally unbiased in this. And um, I want to make sure that you understand what I'm trying to say, but I also want people to understand that I say everything today in this topic out of a heart that genuinely cares about people. And I know this topic can be a real hot-button topic that can be quick to draw emotions um, from both sides. And I think it's very important to understand that what I'm going to give you today is the biblical outlook on, well, of course, you saw the title, the biblical outlook on divorce. And um, yeah, I said divorce. Uh, that's just a topic that is so, so touchy that I want to be careful because there are, I mean, the, the statistics are overwhelming as far as it comes to divorce. I mean, according to the APA.org, the American Psychological Association, um, they say the divorce rate is about 40 to 50 percent. And they actually, if you just look it up, they say 50 percent. I mean, you've got, it's, it's crazy. You go to the CDC, they've got statistics on the divorce rate. And so divorce is rampant. And it's a, it's a, so it's a major topic that a lot of people have gone through. Um, I imagine a, a large percentage of my listeners will have gone through a divorce. And so if that's you today, you've gone through divorce, please understand that as I go through this, I want to give you what the Bible says about divorce. But I also want you to know that I, I care about you. I, I don't want to hurt your feelings in any way. But at the same time, I want to give you truth on what the Bible says about divorce. And you say, well, I've gone through a divorce. And um, as we go through some of this beginning, of this stuff on what the Bible says about divorce, you say, that's great, I really appreciate that, but I've been divorced, so what What do I do now? And we will talk about that when we get to the end. So please wait. If you've been through a divorce and you want to know, well, what do I do now? Um, we will get to that. So just hold on to the end, and we'll talk about that. So let's dive right into today, divorce. Of course, divorce is the is the dissolution of the, of the marriage contract. It means to put away. Um, it's where somebody takes their marriage vows and they break them. They um, they decide they no longer want to be married. They get a divorce. They separate, and um, life moves forward from there. And so let's talk about divorce today. Now, marriage is a God-ordained institution. All right, it's a God-ordained institution. God created the institution of marriage. And it's the union of a man and a woman. Now, we're not going to get on the topic of homosexuality today. That is a different topic for a different episode. We will have one that covers that. But let me just put this out there. God never intended, God never ordained for a man to be, quote-unquote, married to a man. God gave Eve to Adam. He didn't give him Steve. Um, and here's the deal. God is not for this homosexual agenda. I say that unapologetically. Um, I say it as truth. It's very biblically clear. God is against homosexuality. You cannot say you are a Christian and a homosexual. It does not fit, and we'll have a topic on that here soon. But God ordained the institution. He created the institution of marriage, the union of a man and a woman, and really the act of two becoming one. And really you begin to find it in Genesis chapter 2 and verse 24, where it says, Therefore shall a man leave his father and mother, and shall cleave unto to his wife, and they shall be one flesh. All right, so God ordained and he instituted this marriage, this institution of marriage. Now, there's really, if we were to just boil it all down, there's two reasons for the institution of marriage, as we find in Scripture according to God. Uh, number one, the reason for marriage, as from the Word of God, is in Genesis chapter 2 and verse 18. The Bible says, And the Lord God said, It is not good that man should be alone. 
I will make and help meet for him. So the first reason I find from Scripture that God, God says that the the institution of the marriage, uh, the marriage institution rather, is because God didn't want man to be alone. He said it's not good. It's not good that man should be alone. I will make and help meet for him. I will make a complete completer for him. I'll make somebody who can help him. I'll make somebody who will be with him. I'll make someone who he, he won't be lonely. And so God created marriage for, for many different reasons, but number one, I find that really the very first reason you find within Scripture is so that man would not be alone. There's a lot of danger. I think men understand this. Women, I'm sure, understand this as well. When you're alone, you tend to get in more trouble. Um, when you're alone, um, let's just be frank, men will look at the, on the Internet at things they should have never looked at, but they will because they are alone. Um, people do stuff that they sh- should never do, but they'll be tempted to do it a lot easier and a lot quicker because they're alone. God said it's not good to be alone. And uh, there's a big thing about having an accountability partner. And uh, that comes to siblings, that comes to a lot of different areas, but marriage it applies as well. It's not good for you to be alone. You need somebody to help you. You need an accountability partner. You need a completer. And so God created a marriage so that man would not be alone. But then number two, God created marriage for procreation. Hebrews 13.4. Marriage is honorable in all, and the bed undefiled. And then you'll go back to Genesis, and you'll see that God told them to fill the earth. And so God created marriage not only so that man would not be alone, but so that a man and a woman could come together, and they just put it put it uh, put it down on the bottom shelf. They could create other humans. God created. I mean, that's what procreation means, folks. Um, God did it for procreation to fill the earth and so to have children and to have a family and to do those things. That's why God created marriage. And so, really, we could give some other reasons, but I'm just going to stop there. Those two reasons: man would not be alone, and for procreation. And so, God, when He instituted this this institution this contract, this covenant of marriage, God intended this to be a lifelong covenant, a lifelong contract. You'll see in Matthew chapter 19, verses 5 and 6, the Bible says, And said, For this cause shall a man leave his father and mother, and shall cleave to his wife, and they twain shall be one flesh. Wherefore they are no more twain, but one flesh. What therefore God hath joined together, let no man put asunder. God took this contract, when you got married, when you marry your spouse, you are pledging to them, you are vowing to them that you won't leave them for in sickness and, in sickness and health and richer and poor and all that stuff. Uh, you promise to stay with them. You are vowing. You are making a covenant. You are making a contract. In fact, God even refers to your wife, your spouse, as the spouse or the wife of your covenant. In Malachi chapter 2, verse 14, and that verse says, Yet ye say, Wherefore, because the Lord hath been witness between thee and the wife of thy youth, against whom thou hast dealt treacherously, yet is she thy companion and the wife of thy covenant. And so God looks at this thing of marriage as a lifelong covenant. And if you were to go through Scripture, and let me encourage you to do this, if you were to go through Scripture and you were to look at the, the vow, you were to look at a covenant. You were to look at a contract. These were things that God was very serious about. God said it would be better for you to, to not make a vow at all than to make a vow and not keep it. Those things are very important to God. God does not like it when people make a vow, they make a covenant, and they break it. And that includes the area of marriage as well. 
And so from basic research in the Bible, I think it is very clear to anybody with an open heart and an open mind that desires to know God's Word, I think it's very clear God intended marriage to be a lifelong covenant, something to not be broken. That's why he said in Matthew 19, let no man put asunder to divide, to break apart. And so when we come to the Bible, though, we see in Deuteronomy chapter 24, verses 1 through 4, we see some reasons for divorce. Under the law, looking at the Israelite nation and just some laws, some civil laws, all right, had to do with their government, had to do with their, in general, their way of life within their, within their land, within their law, we find some reasons for divorce in Deuteronomy chapter 24, verses 1 through 4. And I'm not going to take a whole lot of time to read them, but, um, well, maybe we will. It says in verse number one, When a man hath taken a wife and married her, and it come to pass that she find no favor in his eyes, because he hath found some uncleanness in her, then let him write her a bill of divorcement, and give it in her hand, and send her out of his house. And when she is departed out of his house, she may go and be another man's wife. And if the latter husband hate her, and write her a bill of divorcement, and give it in her hand, and sendeth her out of his house, or if the latter husband die, which took her to be his wife, her former husband, which sent her away, may not take her again to be his wife after she is defiled, for that is an abomination before the Lord, and thou shalt not cause the land of sin in which the Lord thy God give thee, giveth thee for an inheritance. And so you find some reasons for divorce within, okay, within the law. Now the question is, the question really comes down to, what does God believe, what does God say, rather, about divorce? Clearly from Scripture, there are some reasons, according to the Old Testament law, for divorce. But what does God truly say about divorce? Yes, we see these Old Testament laws, but we come to something interesting when Christ, Jesus Christ, is asked about divorce. And he says that these things, like those issues that we found in Deuteronomy 24, that they were given out of the hardness of man's heart. Let me read it to you. He answers that question in Matthew chapter 19, verses 7 through 9. They say unto him, Why did Moses then command to give a writing of divorcement and to put her away? Verse 8 says, And he said unto them. Now remember, the preceding verses were that, that he answered, For this cause shall man leave father and mother, and shall cleave unto his wife, and they shall twain be one flesh. Wherefore they are more, no more twain, but one flesh. What therefore God hath joined together, let no man put asunder. And they follow up with that question, well, why then did Moses give a writing of, uh, give the law for the writing of the divorcement to put her away? And here's what Jesus responds with in verse 8. He saith unto them, Moses, because of the hardness of your hearts, suffered you to put away your wives. But from the beginning, listen to this, but from the beginning, it was not so. And I say unto you, whosoever shall put away his wife, except it be for fornication, and shall marry another, committeth adultery. And whoso marrieth her which is put away, doth commit adultery. And so here we have, very conclusively, the answer of Jesus Christ. In response to the law, in response to some of these things that you see, we see what God's true answer is of divorce. So let me break it down for you a little bit. We have in the Old Testament some reasons for divorce, that you could give your spouse a writing of divorcement. So, is God okay with divorce? Jesus responds to that question and looks at them and says, well, here's why Moses gave you that law, because of the hardness of your hearts. 
You were going to do it whether you were able to give them a writ of divorcement or not. So let's try and make this something legal. Let's try and make this something to where it's not some easy thing for you to just put away your wife. Moses, because of your the hardness of your heart, suffered you to put it away your wives. But from the beginning, it was not so. From the beginning, God didn't want it to be this way. God intended you to never put away your spouse. That's what Jesus Christ is saying in this verse. In essence, what he's saying is, though divorce may have been the law of the land, it isn't what God wanted for marriage. It may have been legal, but that didn't make it right. How many of you know something that is legal but is not right? Uh, Abortion is legal. Is it right? No. No, it's not right. There's a lot of things, even in the United States, that are legal, but that doesn't make them right. Jesus is looking at them saying, just because it's legal doesn't make it right. And then he gives the reason for divorce. And that's really what I want to get to today. You say, so God does allow for divorce. Yes, he does. God does allow for divorce. You say, is, so does that mean God is okay with divorce? Well, let me, let me answer that question. He says in verse 9, And I say unto you, Whosoever shall put his wife away his wife, except it be for fornication, so you kind of have this little cutout there in the sentence, and shall marry another, committeth adultery. So if we were to go back, let's look at that again. Whosoever shall put away his wife, and you got almost a, a parenthetical statement here, except it be for fornication. What you can do is you can almost take that out. Whosoever shall put away his wife, and shall marry another, committeth adultery. But he gives a little he gives a little asterisk here, per se. He says, except it be for fornication. The only way it's not adultery is if it is fornication that you're putting away your wife for. Hmm. So that is the only reason that Jesus says is right to give your spouse a writ of divorcement is in the area of fornication. In fact, in every passage of Scripture that you find Jesus Christ talking about marriage, the only reason he gives for the putting away of your spouse is for that one word, fornication. You won't find any other reason with Christ. You won't find any other thing to put away your spouse for, only for fornication. Look at Matthew chapter 5, verses 31 through 32. It says, It has been said, Whosoever shall put away his wife, let him give her a writing of divorcement. But I say unto you, that whosoever shall put away his wife, saving for the cause of fornication, causeth her to commit adultery. And whosoever shall marry her that is divorced committeth adultery. So there's there you have it. He once again says the only reason for divorce is for the cause of fornication. Now, if you ask somebody, if you were to Google, if you were to listen to a, uh, a debate or whatever on divorce or somebody talking about divorce, they'll typically say, well, you know, according to the Bible, you can get a divorce for adultery. Let me ask you, was that the answer God gave there in those verses? No, he didn't say adultery, did he? He said fornication. Now, some people say, well, adultery and fornication are the same thing, and that's what I want to get to today. No, they are not. Fornication and adultery are two different things within the Bible. And so let me give them to you real quick. If we go to adultery, all right, adultery is to, very simply, it means to break the wedlock. It's a violation of the marriage bed, according to the dictionary. All right, it's a violation of the marriage bed. You're married, you break your wedlock, you have, and let's let's just say, you, you have sex with somebody else and you're married, you have committed adultery. Now, some people say that fornication is continued 
adultery. That's what some people say. In fact, I've learned, heard a lot of preachers who say that. I've heard uh, Bible college professors say that, that uh, fornication is just continued adultery. Not so, my friend. Fornication is something completely different. Fornication is committed by unmarried persons. In fact, if you look in the 1828 uh, Noah Webster's Dictionary, you'll find the very first definition, it contains unmarried, speaking about unmarried people. If you go back to the 1792 um, Dictionary of Samuel Johnson, when you go into the, the fornicate and fornication and fornicator, within his dictionary, it always talks about an unmarried person. Fornication is done between unmarried people. It's fornication. So, for instance, you go back to like Rahab the harlot. She was a prostitute. She was a harlot. She was unmarried. What was she committing? She was committing fornication. Now, if a married man was with Rahab, for her it was fornication. For him it was adultery. All right? And so that's what you have. Fornication and adultery are different. For the people who say that, well, no, 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 fornication is just continued adultery, that's not the case because, well, let me read you this verse. Listen closely to this verse. It's Matthew 15, 19. And you tell me from this verse if adultery and fornication are the same thing. The Bible says, For out of the heart proceedeth evil thoughts, murders, adulteries, fornications, theft, false witness, blasphemies. Did you catch it? Adulteries and fornications were in the same verse, telling you that they are two different things. The Bible is clear. Fornication is between unmarried people. People. In fact, if you go to 1 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 2, the Bible says, um, Nevertheless, to avoid fornication, let every man have his own wife, and let every woman her own husband. The Bible says if you want to avoid fornication, get married. Get married. It's as simple as that. And so you say, well, that doesn't make a whole lot of sense, Josh. That doesn't make sense much at all. How can you divorce somebody if you're not married to them? What Jesus was referring to within his answer to the writ of divorcement, he was really referring to the Jewish espousal period. Have you heard that term, espoused? Sounds kind of familiar, doesn't it? Especially coming just from Christmas, uh, Mary was espoused to Joseph. They were espoused together. They were in their espousal period. Now, the espousal period within Jewish custom was normally around a year, and it was as legally binding as the actual marriage. It was kind of like an engagement, except it was a whole lot more serious than what we know as an engagement. Uh, how many of you know somebody who has broken off an engagement? I, I think I can name you probably two, maybe three people. It's, it's fairly common to know somebody who has broken off an engagement. It's not as serious as it used to be. Well, for the Jews, their engagement, what you might think of, was called a spousal, and it was so much more serious. It, it was like a contract. It was as legally binding as actual marriage. They referred to each other as husband and wife. That's why Joseph, he called, it, he called Mary his wife. Um, Mary called Joseph her husband. Even though they weren't married yet, they were espoused. But it was that serious. It was a time for the groom to go out to get the home ready to receive his bride. It was a time for the, the bride to prove her faithfulness to the groom. If the bride was found during the espousal time period, if she was found to be unfaithful or with child, then the groom could give her a writ of divorcement, a bill of divorce, to put her away. That's what Joseph was facing in Luke chapter 2 and verse number 5, who in that verse it says to be taxed with Mary, his espoused wife, being great with child. 
Now, we know Joseph was facing that issue. You remember Mary, when she found out that she was pregnant with the Messiah, she, she left. She went to go visit her cousin Elizabeth. Remember that? And I believe the Bible says that she was there for three months. And so here she, here she and Joseph, they're in this espousal period. His wife, his wife, who we might say wife-to-be, but in that time was referred to as his wife, his wife goes away for three months and then comes back and she's got a belly bump. Like, it's clear she's pregnant. And that's where all those thoughts of Joseph were going. Hmm, I need to put her away. I probably need to give her a writ of divorce. And he gave her a bill of divorce. But remember, the angel came, came to him and solved the whole issue for him. But that's what Jesus would have been referring to. He's referring to that espousal period. Meaning, once they truly are married, God never intends for that marriage vow to be broken. Never intended. Never intended for it to be broken. Christ was referring to the unmarried fornication referring to the Jewish espousal period. Marriage, in the way that God defined it, is the most sacred relationship you can enter into. Love is given one word in the English, but it's given four words in the Greek. It's, it's given agape, which refers to God's love. It's given phileo, which refers to brotherly love or friendship love. You've heard of Philadelphia, the, town, the city of brotherly love. That's a phileo, brotherly love or friendship love. You have storge, which is protective or parental love. And then you have eros, which is romantic love, from which the word we get erotic. All right, so you got agape, phileo, storge, eros, all have to do with love in different aspects. Did you know that marriage is the only one, the only relationship on the planet that combines all four of these together? That's the only institution that combines God's love the way God intended it to be. It's a God-ordained institution that combines the, the friendship love, that combines the protective and the parental love as they become parents, and then combines eros, which is the romantic love. That is the only t- institution that becomes all four. And as a famous person once said, to us, God has given the sacredness of marriage as Christ and the church, the bridegroom and the bride. And in the beauty and the sacredness of a marital relationship between a man and a woman, as it is shown in the commitment of the marriage vows, I do and I will. When you say I do to one, you say I don't to all the others. That's divorce. And so you'll find from God, from Jesus Christ's answers, from God's answers in Matthew chapter 19, verses 7 through 9, Matthew chapter 5, verses 31 through 32. The only reason for divorce is fornication. You say, I'm married. What do I do? Can I have a divorce? According to God, no, you shouldn't have a divorce. Because if you do have a divorce, the Bible says you're causing your spouse to commit adultery. That's what the Bible says. Go back, Matthew chapter 19, 7 through 9, Matthew 5, 31 through 32. Read it for yourself. That's what God says. And you say, well, you know, I've had a divorce. I agree with you. I agree God doesn't want a divorce, but I've had a divorce. So what do I do now? So here's what I would give you. If you're married, don't leave your spouse now. Don't go out, and because you have remarried, don't go out and, and divorce this second spouse and say, well, I'm not supposed to have a divorce. Don't do it again. You just ask God to forgive you and don't leave your spouse now. And then, two, you serve God from where you are. You can't go back and change the past. You can't go back and change it. You have to move forward now. You have to serve God from where you are. And then three, you have to stop looking at the past and look to the future you can have for God. 
God still wants to use you. God still, hey, God still promises to forgive you. As I said last week, um, when we talked about those who have had an abortion, what do they do? God's promises of salvation still apply to you. God's promises of forgiveness still apply to you. God still has a plan for your life. God still has something he wants you to do. And God wants you to move forward with your life. And that means when the preacher preaches on divorce, you amen the loudest because you know the truth of what divorce can do. And we didn't even get today into the reality of divorce, how it can it literally can emotionally tear people apart inside of themselves. They're broken. They're distraught. It truly can mess with your very life. For anybody who's been through a divorce, they know it's not a game. They know it's not some easy thing. It is heartbreaking. It's a horrible time period to go through. But you know what? You've been through it. Then you amen. Preacher says, hey, we shouldn't have divorce. Amen, preacher. I know it's the truth. You amen. You you move forward. You you maybe you encourage some other people who are maybe considering a divorce. You say, hey, let me let me talk to you about that. Let me help you. And there's plenty that God wants you to do. God still has some things for you to do in your life. I don't know if it's teaching a Sunday school class. God wants you to be a soul winner for sure. Maybe you lead the youth group. I don't know, writing books and devotionals or, or serving in the music ministry or so many other things that God can have you do. Even though you've been divorced, God still has a plan for your life. Now, I want to answer two questions real quick. And when we typically come to divorce, we get these questions. Um, is a man who has been divorced is he disqualified from being a pastor? And then is a man who is divorced, is he disqualified from being a deacon? Those are two questions you'll get. So I want to group these together um, as I answer them, because Paul gives us the answer in 1 Timothy, and I believe Titus as well. Um, The answer is clear-cut. It's without controversy, so I'm not going to spend a whole lot of time on it. Now, while I say that, many have tried to bring the controversy into the subject when the Bible is clear-cut and precise on the matter. In reference to a man, if he's been through divorce, um, is he qualified or is he unqualified to be a pastor? Here's what the Bible says, 1 Timothy chapter 3, verses 1-2. through 2. This is a true saying. If a man desire the office of a bishop, he desireth a good work. A bishop then must be blameless, the husband of one wife. The husband of one wife. And so really what you'll find is he's required to be married. How can you be a husband if you're not married? There's that. But he has to be the husband of one wife. If you go down in reference to the qualifications of being a deacon, you have this passage, 1 Timothy 3.12, let the deacons be the husband of one wife, ruling their children in their own house as well. And so the Bible is clear-cut. You must be the husband of one wife. That means, okay, that means if a pastor is divorced and remarried, in the eyes of God, that means he has two wives. God didn't recognize the divorce the way man does. That's why if you get remarried, you're committing adultery. How can, that, how can it be that somebody who is um, divorced, and if God recognizes the divorce, then how is it they're committing adultery? Because God still recognizes you as being married to someone else. This shows that it's not a, it's not a one wife at a time deal. Some people will say, the husband of one wife. Well, that's just one wife at a time. No, that's not what God's saying. That's not what God's saying. God is saying that you must be the husband of one wife if you're divorced. Unfortunately, yes, that disqualifies you from being a pastor. Yes, that disqualifies you from being a deacon. That disqualifies. So what does you say, well, I'm a pastor, I'm a deacon, and I've been through a divorce. What, what do I do now? Well, 
I, I want to say this, and I'm, I'm gonna, it's almost going to come across blunt, but I'm not trying to be harsh or rude or uncaring. But I think the first thing you have to do is, is realize that you are disqualified from those positions. But it does not disqualify you from serving God in many other ways. You can teach a, you can teach a Sunday school class. You need to go soul winning. Maybe your pastor will allow you to lead the youth group. Maybe you could write books or devotionals or be an encouragement. Maybe you could serve in the music ministry, sing in the choir, run the sound booth, uh, be an usher. There's so many different things that you can do to serve in your local church and to be a blessing and to serve God as He would have you to. God still has a plan for your life from here. So it's important that rem- to remember, though, that God can and will forgive you. And when you ask God for forgiveness, what's in the past is now the past. There are scars. There are some things that can't come back. But by God's grace, you can still move forward and serve God. And so what does God have to say about divorce? People say, well, you know, if it's adultery, then you can get divorced. Unfortunately, my friend, that's not what God says. It's not what God says. God says, except for the case of fornication. Except for the case of fornication. So truly, divorce It's not something God wants to happen. Now, yeah, it may be legal. It may be legal in the United States, but biblically it's not right. God doesn't want you to get divorced. God wants you to keep pressing forward and keep your covenant and keep your vow. I'm sure there's a lot of other questions you have in regards to this topic, a very touchy topic, and I hope I came across in the right right spirit. Um, to those who are listening. And so if you have any other questions on the area of divorce, you can be sure to send those in at sandycreekstirrings.com. You go to that contact page and you can send in a question on divorce. And I'm sure there's other ones that come to mind during something like this. So if you have those, of course, go to sandycreekstirrings.com and go to the contact page and you can submit that question there. would love to hear from you. I pray and hope that you will continue to serve God with your life. And God still has a plan for you, my friend. God wants you to do something great with your life. For those of you who are considering marriage, realize the seriousness of it. You never want it to end in divorce. You want to keep your covenant for God. And so as you continue to move forward with your life and to serve God, let me encourage you, keep looking up and keep stirred up for the cause of Christ.